Hi, I'm Neil Stavum. Here's the podcast for Connecting Faith. Enjoy the conversation. Real conversations about how we live out our faith every day. Welcome to Connecting Faith. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Connecting Faith. I'm Joe Bender. Thanks so much for listening in today. Well, anyone who's listened to me for any amount of time knows that I share my home with not only my husband, but two teenage boys. And if you have a couple of teenagers of your own, you know that it's not that unusual to experience both joy and pain of parenting all in the same day. The responsibility of raising a teenager to become a responsible adult feels very daunting often. And I may not know much, but this I know. We could all use a little bit of help with that task. That's why today I'm calling in an expert to help us understand our teens. Well, welcome back to the show, Dr. Jim Burns. Jim's president of Homeward, an organization seeking to advance the work of God in the world by educating, equipping, and encouraging parents and churches to build God-honoring families from generation to generation. Jim is also the senior director of the Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific University. He's the host of Homeward Radio Broadcasts and speaks around the world at seminars and conferences. His many books include Confident Parenting and 10 Building Blocks for a Solid Family. Well, Jim, welcome back to the show. Joe, great to be with you. And uh, teenagers, you've got two of them. Boy, that's a uh, – and you said joy uh, joy and pain. You're right. Yes. Sometimes not just in the day, but in the hour, <laughs> in the minute. It's true. And right now I have a, a, a just about entering the not-so-great part of teenager. And then I have one right in the middle. And so it's very funny because my almost 13-year-old continues to just come up to me, give me a big hug and say, Mom, I'm not going to be like that. <laughs> and well, I say, I hope so. yes, you will. You will be like that. Give it about 12 months. So, well, you've written so many different books. We've talked about family and youth ministry and marriage before. Why did you wait until now to, to specifically talk about teenagers? Joe, I need to get my kids out of the teen years. Oh. Uh, j- just as, as with your thing about your kids, my, uh, my daughter, Becca, who is now a marriage and family therapist who specializes working with kids, which is funny, but when she was 17, she said, um, you know, Dad, all of my friends think you are the coolest dad. So, of course, my head swelled until I made the mistake of saying, do you think I'm a cool dad? She <laughs> goes, no, absolutely not. You won't let me do this or that, or, you know, or whatever. Teenage years are humbling. So, you, it, you know, my PhD is in this. This is what I you know, I mean, I've, I have written other books, yes, but this is my passion, and uh, I couldn't do it until after my kids were, were out of the teens because it was just too humbling. And uh, so, you know, as I even write Understanding Your Teen, I, I do it with trepidation, knowing that, uh, you know, there's no easy answers. I mean, kids have to move from dependence to independence. They go through an experimental phase, and, you know, some go at it. I mean, your 13-year-old may not may not push like the other one. That's what's crazy mm-hmm. is they're from the same family and and whatnot. They're all different, but they do push a bit. And and actually, I'm glad that they push. I'd rather have them pushing in the teen years than when they get to be young adults. And, uh, and then they push when they're not, you know, in the love and sanctuary of their parents at all times. So there you go. Well, that's true. And I do remind my 15-year-old of that all the time, that he's so lucky to be in such a loving environment where he can right. have this experimental period. But I love even the cover of your book. It's called Understanding Your Teen. And it has a picture of this emoji in an eye roll, which is how I see my son's eyes very often. So (laughs) it just made me giggle. I I thought it was hereditary because 
when I first married Kathy, I I was I, I didn't I didn't see eye rolls in my family for some reason. And Kathy did the eye roll, not bad. We've been married 43 years. And then all of my girls started doing the eye roll. I think the eye roll for them happened at about nine. But uh, we even had a dog that kind of rolled their eyes, and I went, "What is this?" <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah, the teen years, it is the eye roll. Well, I highlighted a a paragraph right away when I started reading because it kind of encapsulated my life right now. It says, somehow, the moment you have a child, part of your heart is ripped out of you and placed in the heart of your child, and you'll never be the same. A late-night phone call while one of the kids is out causes anxiety, a cough, a fever, or a sports injury brings panic and worry. A poor decision about morals and values causes terror in our souls. Raising teenagers is not for the weak at heart. That is so yeah. true, Jim. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, you know, my background, uh, and you mentioned it in the intro, is, you know, is youth ministry. So I didn't think Kathy and I would have that. I mean, I knew other kids and other families were going to have that. And, you know, right at that time, as they started entering the teen years, uh, all of those things that were just described, that's not just a thought about somebody else's kids. That was our kids, too. And we went, no, what are you thinking? Until we kind of realized that that's sort of their job description, whether we like it or not. It was kind of our job description when we were teens, um, although being a parent of a teen now is very different. Uh, but the fact is, is that's kind of how we're going to feel. And sometimes it just feels good to be around others who say, yeah, I know how you feel because, you know, we've been through it. And uh, part of understanding your teen is me putting my arm around, you know, loving parents and saying, we can get through this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and we do. That's it, what's amazing is, is we do. It's true. We do get through it. It gives us something to talk about when we're not with our kids. And, you know, it's different now, of course, than it was when we were teens. My teenager would say that makes me not in the know as far as what right, they need right. to deal with. But, Jim, some things have stayed the same. It's just that they're approached a little bit different. The teen years do bring out questions of identity, questioning authority, questioning faith, struggling with pressures around sexuality, peer pressure, trying to fit in. We dealt with all of these things as as well. Yeah. What makes it different, though? Well, I would say two things, because I think the teens today are right, that, uh, you know, we weren't their age. We weren't 13 and we weren't 15. We were actually, um, we were, but we weren't their 13 and 15. Two, two things. One is we did go through it, but typically they, they go through it younger. For example, pornography. The, you know, the average kid will see pornography at age 11, Okay. Well, that was not the case when when I was growing up anyway. I mean, was there pornography? Sure. Could you and for me, it was either like a Playboy type magazine or or you'd have to sneak into the theater, which thank God I never did. But the point being today it's prevalent and there's been a death of innocence where kids see, feel uh, look at things much earlier, not just pornography, but so many other things. The other aspect is there has been a, a, a changing morals and values in our world. So, you know, I was talking with our youth pastor on Sunday, and he was saying that, the, that really he thinks a majority of our high school kids have a very different view on sexuality than, um, than he does. And he's, he's a young guy and totally with it and wonderful, but, the, you know, his biblical view is different than their biblical view. They still love Jesus. They still sing praises, but their view on certain issues, gender identity issues, things like that, it's – and I said, where, where do you think that's coming from? And I was just testing him because, I mean, this is what I live in. And he said, well, I think, you know, this is what they're taught in school. This is what they see in movies. You know, it's it's just – it's both media and education, you know, that's doing that with them. And uh, so, again, we're, that's different. You know, tip, I was raised in a non-Christian home, Joe, and my parents had more of a biblical view on certain issues than – 
um, you know, what some of the kids are being raised with today with some of the, you know, unique side to culture. So I think those two issues for me, it happens younger and it happens um, and the culture is not our friend today in many ways. I mean, it can be, but it's not a lot of times when it comes to some of the teen issues. So part one of your book talk, talks about how we raise our teens to become responsible adults. Given what you yeah. just said about how the culture is different, how do parents best equip ourselves in order to be able to raise our yeah. children in this environment? Well, we have to become students of the culture. You know, I don't know that my parents were really students of the culture. I mean, they sat with me when I was in fourth grade and watched the Beatles <laughs> you know, on television, but they weren't students of the culture. Like, I think we have to be. You know, it's the type of music, uh, the type of uh, media, you know, how do we create a media-safe home? So for Kathy and I in the teen years, and I think for anybody, we, we just have to keep up on who's influencing our kids. Because, you know, the problem is, is that my parents could watch me be influenced by, you know, the Beatles or watch me be influenced by whoever the greatest, uh, you know, athlete is. But today, because of of media so much more private and because of things like Wi-Fi in our bedrooms and things like that, we may not know who the influences are. So that means as parents, we've got to become students of the culture. and, And so we have to learn, interestingly enough, from who? Our kids. So, you know, I was having to always say to my kids, okay, so this music group, I mean, it seems like you're talking about it. Who, who are they? And then I would go, you know, research them and go, oh, my goodness, that's not probably what we want our kids to hear. And, and, and part of it was we can't uh, force our kids into a bubble. That doesn't work. Rigid parenting causes uh, rebellion. So, so what we have to do is teach them to learn to discern, and that's much harder for a parent because I'm not saying that you, ha- you give them total freedom of media, say, that's going to influence them. But I do think that we have to um, help them you know, kind of learn to discern. I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but you know, I had this moment where I have a, my youngest daughter was a junior Olympic champion in, in gymnastics, and so we would all go and spend days to watch her do her thing for two minutes and 45 seconds or whatever. We always used to laugh at that. But the other two girls I took to a, they were teen, young teens. And I took them to a teen movie, which was, you know, I looked on focus on the family and then they, they kind of said it was okay. It plugged in. <laughs> so I went and it was ridiculous. It was somehow my friend was the guy who wrote the review and I called him later and I go, Hey, you missed it on this one. But I, um, what happened was we, I, I thought, okay, do I leave now? and make a big deal out of it, or do we watch it? And I thought, no, we're going to watch it. So then I went and bought kids ice cream, and I said, okay, let's talk about this movie. Because what I wanted them to do was to to realize what values were a part of this movie or whatever. Well, you know, then I come home and I have to admit, or not home, but to the hotel, I have to admit to Kathy that <laughs> we've just seen a movie that had some, I mean, again, we're not, we're talking PG-ish, well, maybe PG-13, and the kids were of that age. And, you know, again, I, I already had the, you know, seal of approval. But I think I don't know. I didn't always do it right, but I think that was right because it, what I was going to do is it, they, I had a listening audience. Plus, I let them talk, and you know they didn't always agree with me on that. But I had to teach them to learn to discern what they were viewing because mm-hmm. even my kids they would say, you know, well, you know, we don't listen to the words in the music. Well, they do. <laughs> so I would say, well, with those words, what does that do when it you know goes in your head? Those kind of things. And again, I'm not saying that every time my 15 year old, when they were 15, would say. Oh, my gosh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. They didn't do that. But I still now have some responsible adults who probably are just about as conservative as, you know, Kathy and me. And I think part of it was because uh, during those teen years, we we tried to teach them to learn to discern and be students of, of their culture. And it's not easy. And, and even for your listeners who aren't 
uh, raising teens right now, if they're raising even younger kids, we've got to learn the teenage culture because that's who quickly influences people. Well, and it can be little things. I mean, sometimes it's just important to learn about the culture because we need to communicate with our kids. And my parents even are in their late 70s and decided, well, I need to get one of those smartphones because I need to text my grandson. I mean, they needed to be able to communicate. And ours is, of course, even more difficult than that. So it can be little things, but it can also be big things as well. Yeah. And and congratulations to to your parents, because you know what? Instead of forcing the teenagers to communicate to the grandparents, you know, the old way, you know, when you, when you text, that's how they, you know, that's how they communicate. That's a part of their life. So, you know, good for them that they, you know, figured out how to do that. Because again, we have to, we have to, I say this all the time to people who are leaders, we have to minister to teens on their culture and with their culture sometimes. And part of it would be, yeah, they, they text. So uh, even so much that my older daughter, I mean, my daughter now she's, 30, but she uh, was saying she was talking to her good friend from high school. And I said, how great. She goes, oh, I talk to her, you know, at least once a week. And she lives in New York and my daughter lives in California. And she said, well, I said, so you talked to her. That's, that's neat. I go, does she still have that really kind of really cool voice that almost sounds, you know, something she goes, oh no, I, dad, I don't talk. I mean, I don't like call her on the phone. I text her. So in her mind, that's talking. It it is a different world. In fact, I I gave my cell phone number to my students once in a class, and I found that they really like to text between about eleven and two a.m. So that's when the, the communication really starts. So there are some some things I needed to learn there along the way as well. Yeah, and by the way, as a parent, that's where we have to teach our kids to dock their phones because all of those kids wouldn't have made it. I mean, in, in my book, I'm saying, no, dock the phones. They are not allowed to have their phone in their bedroom at a cert- for, for you know, certain times. Um, and, you know, everybody in the family should be – I give an illustration, I guess, in the book about, you know, even a friend of mine who docks their phones at 930, which sounds early, but at nine, he has all teens. <clears throat> so they have six phones, and they all dock it right in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to use the phone, and like, for example, he's, he's uh, you know, texted me after 930, but I'll text back and go, are you in the kitchen? And he goes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but that's, you know, you don't want your kids doing that because we're even having problems with sleep. I have a talk, talk about that in Understanding Your Teen. One of the issues is that kids aren't sleeping because they're texting in the middle of the night. That is true. In fact, we have a rule of 10 o'clock. And so the next time my my son gives me a hard time, I'm going to tell him that your rule is 930 and that will make me look really good. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You're giving him all kinds of freedom. Well, well, I'm going to say he's going to say thank you so much, Mom. He will, I'm sure, when he's 45. Well, I'm talking to Dr. Jim Burns today. He's written just a brilliant book called Understanding Your Teen. Gives a lot of practical advice for those of us who are in that position or those of us who will be soon. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to talk specifics with Dr. Jim Burns. Well, welcome back to Connecting Faith. I'm Joe Bender. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm talking to Dr. Jim Burns today. He is president of Homeward and also senior director of Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific University. He's written a book called Understanding Your Teen, Shaping Their Character, Facing Their Realities. Maybe you're in this position right now as a parent. We do have a few books to give away. Both Jim and IVP Books have graciously donated a few. Give us a call if you would like to get on that list. 
list. Um, otherwise, you can just go to our website at myfaithradio.com, click on Connecting Faith, and you can submit your name that way, and I'll put you in that drawing. Well, Jim, we are talking a little bit about just this um, culture that kids live in with mobile devices, and we had to really see how that worked in our family. And it does change from age 11 to age 15. It's very different. And the kids are always trying to kind of push that envelope because they would like to be on their devices at pretty much all times. So what is your advice as far as um, putting some guardrails around that? Yeah. Well, you said an interesting thing, Joan. So neat talking, by the way, to somebody who has teens um, because you get it. And uh, but one thing, you know, a, a teen in the younger teens, teen, preteen, you know, to me, the the cell phone, which is not a cell phone, it's a it's a mini computer that can you know connect them with the world. You know, it, there should be some pretty good monitoring on it. I'm not sure they should be able to be connected to the world yet, but it is for safety. So if a parent's going to get their kids that and they may not even use texting or they can actually today you can you know, you can monitor it where you don't have texting during school or things like that, or they can only text, you know, you or whatever it might be. So I think, you know, that's different than when the kids get older because your parenting is different. So, you know, one of the rules would probably be that they earn the right to gain some more of the freedom of the phone. Okay. And, uh, and yet I find that even when kids are older, you say, Hey, one of the rules of our house is, for example, we're talking about uh, right before that we were talking about docking your phone. Well, one of the rules, everybody docks their phone right here at a certain time or whatever it might be. They, they'll, they'll, they'll seem to do better, but I think they, they have to earn the right to get to the next level of freedom with, um, with any kind of, uh, with any kind of uh, social media or any of that stuff. And, uh, and, you know, when you start younger with a little bit of rules, they'll be better off. It's easier. And then as they get older, they'll want that freedom, but they'll have to also earn the freedom. So for me, it's kind of like, hey, this is not just just because you're you're 15 or 16, you have total freedom. No, that's, this isn't the case. You have to earn that freedom just like you would with, with other issues in life. And, you know, again, we didn't have to deal with that before. I mean, I, my parents – used to get mad at me because I would take our landline. Yes, mm-hmm. there were people who had landlines and they would bring, I brought it into the bedroom and I would talk to my girlfriend uh, and then I'd fall asleep with the phone out. Then my parents would have to open the door, pick, you know, get the phone up. Well, that's not the case today. It's very private now. So uh, I think we have to have more of those kinds of uh, uh, understandings. I call them understandings. In the book, I talk about contracts. You know, that's a very legal term. I don't think you do. You use a legal term with your kids, but I think you kind of develop contracts with them. You know, in our house, this is what it's going to be. And again, if they don't like it, then you say, hey, you know, if I was your age, I might feel the same way. Nevertheless, <laughs> this is the way it's going to be. And they go, well, life's not fair. And you say, well, you're right. Life isn't fair. And when you get to be an adult, you know, you can choose however you want to do it. But as, as long as you're here and as long as you're on our dime, you know, this is the case. You can do that lovingly. You don't have to do that. You can do that with a smile. Um, even the part that I used to say to my kids all the time, if I, hey, if I was your age, I totally get that. I, I would totally, I would be frustrated just like you are. Nevertheless, because I need to lead. So as a parent, we had to lead. And, you know, why do we expect our kids to think we're the best? Most of us didn't think our parents were always perfect or right. So they're not going to necessarily do it, especially if we put some you know, guidelines and boundaries into the relationship. So, you know, you're not trying to be their best friend. You're trying to raise a responsible adult, as we said at the beginning. Well, that's true. And it it was really necessary for us. I told you my experience just with my freshman and sophomore uh, college students with my phone. 
we also did an experiment with my teenage son's phone in which I said, I'm going to keep your phone tonight. And I stayed up late just to see how many messages continued to come in, whether that was Snapchat or texting or whatever was happening, because I needed to know and I needed him to know. Now, if you had this phone in your room, you would have 12 different alerts going off between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. I don't know why these kids have their phone in their room, but you're not going to have yours. This is what's going on. And 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 sometimes it's necessary to have that conversation with your kid, even though they don't say nice things to you at the point that you're doing it. See, I love nevertheless. The of, <laughs> that's the point of good of good parenting, Joe. You did it. You got it. Because, you know, why would we expect our kids to go, hey, thank you. I totally understand. You're creating some boundaries for me and you're really helping me out. I mean, they're not going to do that. They don't think that way. That doesn't mean that they're bad. They just are teenagers. Good thing, you know, their, their brain hasn't even fully grown. We talk about an understanding your teen that, see, when I was going to grad school and when I got my Ph.D., I learned that the brain quit growing at age 16, interestingly enough. Hmm. Today, nobody says that. So the frontal cortex, if you would, this is an oversimplification, but it's your, your decision-making process doesn't really quit growing until age 24. So some of the things that we, you know, are challenged with by our kids, it's partly because, you know, they honestly don't get it because they're, they're decision-making process isn't as, as uh, you know, well-developed, if you would. So you can blame it on the brain, but you still have to say, <laughs> you know, nevertheless, this is how it's going to be. And as parents, we can't expect our kids to always like us. We don't have to be, you know, horrible ogres who are screaming, yelling, and, you know, we do it with leadership. So we, we literally just say, this is the way it's going to be. We don't always agree with everything our boss says, but we we, you know, kind of keep our mouth shut and go with it. Well, that's, you know, as, as parents, we're still the boss. And this is where it's hard is we're moving our kids from, you know, pretty much controlling our kids when they're, you know, in elementary school to kind of coaching to all the way up in teen years to consulting where much of their day-to-day, uh, say by the time they're 17, 18, much of their day-to-day decisions should be done on their own, even if they fail. But since when is failure a bad thing? Sometimes failure can be a good learning deal. So you say to your kids, and we talk about this in understanding your teen, we say, you know, here's the rule they fail on the rule. And then you say, sorry, that's a consequence we've already talked about. And then you say, okay, let's try it again. Because what you want to do is say, you want to teach them to become responsible, not just to take away their privileges. So then you give it to them again. After they've had the consequence, there's going to be a deeper consequence next time. But you say, hey, you know what? I believe in you. I think you can do this this time. So now what you're doing is you're, you're saying, hey, you have the right to earn this back. Just become responsible and you know, it's a thing of five steps forward and a four steps backwards, and then it's six steps, you know, backwards and two steps forward. And you know, that's just life. Life is is messy. Life. You know, we're all sinners. Uh, we all miss the mark. Um, our kids are going to do that too. Mm. So, Boy, that's hard to give that. It. It's hard to give that experience back, that responsibility back, once yeah. they have messed up. And yet, you do yeah. write that that is necessary. Otherwise, they're not yeah. going to learn to do it right. Right, right. It's a constant adventure, Jim. That's what it is. It's a constant adventure. <laughs> You're so right. Well, I'm talking with Dr. Jim Burns today. He is has written a book called Understanding Your Teen, Shaping Their Character, Facing Their Realities. We're going to talk more about how to foster spiritual growth with your teens and many other issues that you won't want to miss coming up on Connecting Faith.
Well, welcome back to Connecting Faith. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Joe Bender and pleased to be talking today with Dr. Jim Burns. He's president of Homeward and senior director of the Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific University. He's also written a number of books, including Confident Parenting, 10 Building Blocks to a Solid Family, and the book we're talking about today, which is Understanding Your Teen. As you know, I have a couple of teens, Jim, and so I was soaking up a lot of the wisdom in this book. And one of the sections that you write on is, how to foster spiritual growth in our teens, even though they sometimes pretend like they don't listen to a word we say. How do I keep going strong? Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, part of it is that's part of their job, too. We were talking earlier about the experimental phase, but, you know, when kids are, when you think about uh, faith development, Joe, you know, they own your faith, then they own the community's faith, but they really don't own their faith until, you know, a farther stage down the road. And, Sometimes they actually have to disown your faith to own their own faith. Our daughter did that, Christy, our oldest. She wrote in the school paper uh, in college. She went to a Christian college, and she said, I had to disown my parents' faith to own um, my own. Now, I didn't know she had disowned our faith. I didn't realize that. She was going to a Christian college. She was kind of – when she'd be at home, it was kind of okay. But, um, you know, she really had some huge, at least intellectual issues. And really, that's not a bad thing. Because now what I've found is that the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. So as parents, especially in those teenage years, I think we have to kind of allow them the freedom to, um, you know, to, to if they struggle with their faith, that's not all bad. And, and, and that actually scares us as Christians because we're so afraid that our kids are going to just, you know, go down the drain. And, and frankly, one of the biggest stains in uh, the world of youth and family ministry is that 65% of kids graduate from high school who are involved in church, and they leave the church for, for a while. I mean, it's not 65 forever. You know, many of them do come back. But here's the deal. There's about a 300% better chance that kids will stay in the church if they have faith conversations in the home. So, you know, what we had to do was we had to we called it KISS, keep it short and simple. We had to have, we wanted to have faith conversations at the home, but we had to have them sh- very short. Our kids didn't want, you know, us to be their youth pastors. Hmm. And um, so what we found was that uh, if we could just have, you know, dialogue, bring it up, uh, you know, at certain times, certain times they were ex- receptive, certain times they weren't, uh, as long as we weren't preachy and luxury, um, we wanted to keep our faith, you know, kind of in front of them. And for our kids, who, yes, said, you know, youth group is boring or there were cliques or all those kind of things. You know, we said, well, you know, you, you, as long as you're at our house in the teen years, we wanted them to be, they could go to church with us. They could go to the youth group. And actually our daughter, Heidi, our youngest, she ended up going to another church for a while, which was, you know, we were like, oh my gosh. You know what? She had a great experience with that because she, she kind of needed to be outside of our thing. Now, I'm not saying everybody is going to agree with me on that. Um, that was a phenomenal experience. That was a, a spiritual growth experience for her. And yet at the same time, we were so frustrated that, you know, she didn't like our church because the other two girls sort of did. And so we weren't a church family that was going together because she was really very active at this, you know, a church actually closer than our church. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, good for her. But the point being that um, we can't give up and uh, we realize that, you know, with the teenage mindset, they might believe today and and doubt tomorrow. I mean, that's just how they are. I mean, they're, you know, one of my kids used to say they wanted to be a missionary and then, you know, they went to a, I don't, I don't really believe in God and church is boring to, you know, I want to go into the ministry. I mean, it was just hilarious how that all changed. Well, during that time, it was hard for us. Now we look back and go, oh, 
they were going through faith development, faith formation issues. They were becoming a stronger Christian at the same time. We thought they were you know, ready to throw away the faith. So you just can't listen to every word they say. But it's very critical that kids keep this base and that there are faith conversations in the home. Not, again, I, I'm not talking about three-hour Bible studies in the Greek. I'm just saying that, you know, faith is present in the home. Th- those conversations continue to take place. Well, one of the things that you write about, about that made me giggle as well is those faith conversations or those deep conversations about whatever, other, whatever subject comes up often take place when I'm tired. And yet I have to be willing to have that conversation at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night because that's when they want to chat. That's part of being a teenager. No, no, exactly. It's funny you'd say that because we had some very good friends of ours and their kids, they would have conversations at the dinner table and we would always go, wait, we would try and try and try. In fact, I even have written stuff, you know, good faith conversations at the dinner table type of thing. It didn't work for us. The (laughs) dinner table, our kids never wanted to talk about that. So it would happen, you know, I'm exhausted, I'm in their bedroom, it's 10 o'clock, 1030. And all of a sudden, this, you know, that's the moment I'm thinking, Oh, Lord, you know, here you go. Um, But that's when they want to talk. So, you know, we find their time, I found that each night, frankly, I would go into my kids rooms. And I would, uh, I would say, you know, a few times in a week, we would probably have a pretty good faith conversation. Mm Um, and it's pretty good. Didn't always mean it, it had closure and all that. It just simply meant that, you know, they were more open to it. So, you know, you do it at their time, you know, uh, back in the days when I was a youth pastor, we used to say, meet them on their territory. Well, their territory is also, you know, different timing. So, you know, it, it, seldom does it happen when you want it. Oftentimes it happens at the most bizarre times so that we have to be open to that. True. In fact, I had one parent tell me that conversations, tough conversations take place in the car very often as well, because you can't look at them and you can, you're looking straight forward, they're looking straight forward and they seem more able and uh, open to having conversations when you're not staring them in the face. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you'd say that, Joe, because in you having boys, because I've often said I've done quite a bit of writing in the area of, of you know, talking to your kids about healthy sexuality and, and did a chapter in Understand Your Teen. But I say to dads, if they're going to have a conversation with their sons, because dads don't want to sit face to face either. I say, well, you know, what? drive someplace, go on a drive. Uh, I talked to a dad who took my advice. Um, I just said, go, go someplace. Well, he what he did, he lives here in Southern California where we live, and they went they drove to San Francisco and they listened to some tapes on sexuality and uh, they never looked at each other. And they, their goal was to go to a San Francisco Giants baseball game and then two days later go to the Oakland Athletics baseball game. So that was their goal of getting there. But, uh, you know, so in, in the kids, I mean, in the mind, you know, that's what they, they were talking about. But really what the dad was going to do was talk about sex. He said we never had to look at each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, we, and we had great conversations, he said, hours later than I had planned. You know, well, I love the point, hours later than I had planned. <laughs> but they had, you know, they had good conversations without having to look at each other. Good. That's how guys do it, you know. I have so, had to learn some of those things better. along the way because yeah. moms don't always think like their no. teenage boys do. I have found that out for sure. And and it's no. been interesting. It's been an interesting journey, I guess, is the best thing to say. And to not back away. There's so many times, yeah. Jim, that that I might get frustrated and want to turn around and walk away or remove myself from their life for a little bit. And what I found is that my parents didn't do that for me. And I'm just not, I just keep yeah. telling them I'm not going anywhere. So um, it it's a difficult conversation to have. And yet I want them to know I'm going to stick around. 
Yep, exa- exactly. And, you know, that's, you know, there's actually even in the Bible, there's a, a phrase, and it's called ahava. It's actually one of the many words for love. We, you know, we have one word. I love tomatoes, and I love my wife, and I love God, and it's kind of all the same word. But ahava is basically exactly that word. It's a Hebrew word, and it's, it, it's much more than a feeling. It's a commitment and so we need to have an ahava love to our with our kids, which basically means, you know, we're not going anywhere. I don't know what just happened, and we kind of neither one of us like each other right now, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and and you know the, the the Bible. I'm reading through the one year Bible, and I've been doing it since 1983 every year. But I I'm reading a living uh, the new living, so I'm I'm in a more of a paraphrase. And I was I'm so amazed how often it says unfailing love. Well, God has unfailing love for us, so what we need to do is is kind of have that unfailing love. It doesn't say we have to have always unfailing like, because with teenagers, to be honest, we're not going to like some of the things they say or do, but the unfailing love keeps them grounded and shows them that you're not going anywhere. And it gives them, um, you know, uh, security. You know, the Bible even says that the man or woman of integrity walks with securely, security. But I think the, the parents who um, who show unconditional love like this with kids also give their kids a lot of security um, just by doing that. But that doesn't love. We can't mistake love by just allowing them to, to uh, as very lenient parents, allow them to do anything. Cause you know, rigid, I mentioned rigid parenting doesn't work because they rebel, but also lenient too lenient parenting. It doesn't give them a rudder. So, you know, we have to be in that messy middle and uh, you know, I, I wish there was, you know, easy answers on that. But no, we have to be in that, that messy middle of, you know, back to what we were saying is, you know, hey, I love you, but nevertheless, I'm the leader in this uh, house right now. And uh, no, you can't keep your phone up you know, at three in the morning. I'm just, I'm just sorry. It's not going to happen. Well, and that that kind of love, that Ahava love is really at the base of all of it. I mean, it's because I love my kids so much. I, of course, I want the best for them. I want them to yeah. be physically safe and make decisions that will keep them. So I want them to choose a life of faith. I want them to marry a woman who loves the Lord. And, you know, how can I help them along this journey? But the fact of the yeah. matter is I'm not going to be able to direct them. I can just continue to love them regardless of the choices yeah. that they make, right? Boy, that's hard. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> oh, it is. You're, you're exactly right. But, you know, in understanding your teen, we, we talk about you're not, when they're 18, which is now not even the end of the teen years, you know, people are defining it differently. But when they're 18 or so and they're going away to college or they're going into the workforce or whatever, you know, we want them to, to learn the skills to, to develop a mission, a mate, and, a master, and the master. And so, you know, what we need to do is say, if we've given them the opportunity to figure out how, you know, how to have a mission in life, what is their purpose? Not our purpose for them, but what is God's purpose for them? We teach them how to do that. We teach them how to have that, uh, have, what, what does a good relationship look like in terms of the mate? I mean, hopefully they're not going to get married too early, but, you know, that good relationship. And then also how to have a relationship with the master. Part of that then is relinquishing them and uh, trusting that what you've given them is going to, you know, stay in their head and their brain and their heart and whatnot. And, and as time goes on through some bumps and bruises, they'll, they'll come out better on the other side. And, and I really believe that, that as parents, we really good parents have kids who make really poor choices. So we can't put all this blame on, on every parent. Um, Sure. Some parents are pretty goofy, but most I think make some pretty good decisions. And sometimes their kids make lousy decisions and we just have to be careful with that. But, 
that doesn't mean that we're not strategic with those issues. Like you just mentioned, the issue of you know who they're going to marry and whatnot. As you know, my kids at a certain age, I wanted them to know what we believed about the type of person that you would marry, and then we wanted to model certain things for them. But that wasn't going to be the insurance policy that they were going to you know always make the right decision uh, you know in a relationship. It just but we just wanted them to know what it was like. And, and I, you know, long run, I've got two, two of my girls are now married and, you know, they made really good choices, but you know, I don't think either one of the boys would have been in our uh, family circle of trust the first time I met them either. <laughs> so I can imagine. Well, we are, we do try to help our teens make good decisions to make wide choi- wise cho- choices without crushing their character. And um, a lot of that has to do with us understanding their world. The second half of your book deals with just some issues that our teens are dealing with in the, in today's culture. So Jim, I'd like to take a break and then come back and talk about some of those issues that parents can really read up on and help to understand so that they can understand what kind of things their teens are going through. We'll take a quick break on Connecting Faith here, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Connecting Faith. I'm Joe Bender, talking to Dr. Jim Burns today about his book, Understanding Your Teen, Shaping Their Character, Facing Their Realities. Jim, one of the things that you write about is that facing their realities part. The teens of today are facing some things that maybe we didn't have to go through as teenagers when we were in that position. Um, One of the things is we've talked about mobile devices and how difficult that is. Uh, Access to pornography was another thing that we were chatting about and just how available it is to people we used to if we wanted to view pornography would either have to steal some sort of a magazine or sneak into something and that's simply not what's happening today another um, issue that you talk about in your book is eating disorders just striving for control and dealing with some stress how is how are eating disorders affecting young people of today and what do parents need to know about it well it's fascinating joe because uh, you have boys so you know the more girls deal with eating disorders than boys, but one of the rapidly growing areas is with guys who have eating disorders as well. We kind of call this the Christian uh, disease because a lot of times Christian kids, they may not do some of the other stuff, but they'll, um, you know, they'll have some kind of an eating disorder. And so really, you know, I'm going to, this is going to be an oversimplification, but let's classify them with anorexia, which is basically starving yourself to death. You have a, a body image issue. Um, bulimia, which is you are uh, eating and then you figure out ways to get rid of the food by either vomiting or you know diarrhea or whatever, get you know all the fun stuff that you know you can talk about too much information probably, or actually over you know overeating. I mean, and that may be one of the the issues that parents are going. Wait, you just talked about when they think of eating disorders, they think of the, those two definitely. But what about overeating? You know, and uh, all three of those things are you know are are critical to help when a kid has an issue with an eating disorder, I often say um, most of the time nagging isn't going to help. And that, you know, the Bible is very clear where there is no um, counsel that people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So what I've done in the book is not by any means written a, uh, you know, a whole big thing on it. But let's say, for example, a couple of pages on you know, if they're overweight and obesity, and what can we do about it? What are the practical issues of of doing that? With eating disorders, I think it's important that if you even hint, and a lot of times parents wait too long on this, so I think that they want to look at uh, just what 
what is an eating the an eating disorder? What are some of the uh, uh, reactions and results to eating disorders, and uh, and and then get the help that they need. And I just I, today there are people everywhere who can uh, you know authorities who can help their kids. My daughter, I have a daughter like I said who's a therapist. She she specializes in this, and you know a lot of times it's the moms and the dads who don't have any idea. And it, it's the same with eating disorders or even cutting, you know, which is more self injury, which we talk about as well. You know, if that's the case, parents don't want to do this on their own. And they don't want to punish their kids. Just you know, quit doing this. They, they really need the help because uh, I was talking with a young woman who had uh, anorexia, and you know, in her mind, she she was very thin. Obviously, already uh, her breath was already smelling because that's one of the, the things that you can see. And and you know, if she kept basically starving herself, she was going to die. And she, her body image in her mind was that she was she was heavy. And uh, and and uh, you know it's there's a disorder there that you that needs you know some pretty big you know help with and uh, it, all of those are scary mm-hmm. so I think it's important that we make sure that we we have a little bit of knowledge and then go get the help we need. Well, and that's so empowering to know that there is help available. And so yeah. sometimes parents might feel like their kid is the only one, and, and it's simply not true. And so living in isolation is uh, not only hurting their child but also hurting the parents as well. Well, you're right. And we were talking about being students of the culture and um, and sure, the culture. But we also have to be students of some of the things that are affecting kids today. So, you know, when you begin to understand some of the symptoms of anorexia, some of the symptoms of bulimia, even some of the symptoms of, of overeating, um, when we begin to see some of those symptoms, well, then we say, well, what? my goodness, that could be my child. And then that's when we can go and get the help. So that's why parents just have to become um, – you know, aware of what some of those issues are. And as they begin to watch their kids act out in a certain way, you know, there's a reason. So mm-hmm. let's figure out what what it is, but at the same time, get the help you need. Um, you don't have to do this in isolation. You know, there are people who can do an assessment and with that assessment, they can, they can quickly help identify some of the issues that their kids might be going through that you may not know. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also write about how our children of today are there's so much available information to them, things that didn't happen when we were kids. We're able to see tragedies that are happening across the world, uh, the effects of yep. terrorism, and as well as just tragedies that are happening in your own town or in your own group of peers. And that affects your kids as well. So as parents, what is our role there? Well, I, you know, this is interesting because, you know, I, when I was growing up, I mean, there were tragedies, I guess, but I didn't see it, you know, in the news like you do now. Mm-hmm. So when something, when there's a, inst, you know, it's just instant access to all the breaking news stuff. So I think as parents, we have to be very much aware of the fact that we have to be willing to discuss those tragedies with the, with our kids and really let them talk. And, you know, depending on the age of your child, when your child's really young, you don't want to see uh, some of the terrorist uh, visuals that are always on, on the news. So we have to be careful with that. But, you know, I think we have to tell them the truth, give them the hard facts, but uh, also shelter some of those younger kids from some of the graphic video, but then also reassure our kids because I remember when uh, I mean this is, dates me like crazy, but and my older daughter, but when Colin or not Columbine, but one of the tragedy oh, oh it was nine eleven my heavens nine mm. eleven I was actually driving her to school when we heard it on the news and I turned right around because I thought you know what she's going to need the love and support of home. I'm watching all these parents dropping their kids off, and a lot of them maybe hadn't listened to the news. And we, that for us, it was a early time period because I was in uh, Pacific time. 
And um, and we realized we needed to talk about it, but I wasn't sure at her age that I wanted to see, have her see buildings falling and people dust and all that. Um, but it was really important for us to to basically have those conversations. And she was afraid that something like that was going to happen to her school. She was afraid it was going to happen at my work. We were going to Disneyland in a couple of days, and they had said Disneyland would be a you know a terrorist place. And she you know it really messed her up. Well, that was you know what she needed was us to to talk about it. But I also needed to say somewhere in there not to downplay the tragedy, but to also say the odds of us, you know, being on an airplane and crashing are, are you know, it's greater odds that, you know, there's going to be an accident walking across the street. So, you know, you want to give them logic at the same time. And then also, you know, spiritualize. I don't think you have to give them, you know, every nice and neat tucked in answer spiritually, but I think you pray with them and you pray for the people affected. We found that with our kids, one of the ways of helping them through a tragedy, especially like say back, you know, with some of the terrorist type things or whatever, is you know as a family we would pray for them, in you know around the table or whatever, and that was an important part. And then we would say, uh, let's give, you know. So when uh, and we still have this as part of our our family thing. We have a little grandson James, and we've taught him that when there's an ambulance going by or a fire truck or a police, just any siren, that we stop and pray. So, and now again, we're not going to stop the car. We'll be driving with him. In the back, we say, okay, James, what are we going to do? And he says, pray. <laughs> so then we pray for whoever those people are. So you begin to help them, you know, think and work through some of these tragedies. But don't don't let, I mean, others will do it. School is going to do it. Church can do it. But I think it's part of the job of the parents to have those conversations. Never mm-hmm. easy. Well, and often my children will say, hey, did you see that such such and such happened? They're looking at it yeah. on their social media feeds. And so yeah. it's it's yeah. not something that we can protect them from always once they get to a certain age. And then I continually just ask this question, what do you think about that? Because yes, I don't know that they're asking me, for my opinion, but they somehow, I want to hear theirs as well. And that's hard to do sometimes too, because I'd like to react in a way where I'm just going to, you know, spew off whatever I think about a situation. But as you continue to say throughout your whole book, this is about having conversations and and getting into your teenager's world so that you can understand them better. Yeah. I, I know you didn't interview me for me to tell you this, but you're an amazing mom because that's exactly what you should be doing. What do you think? How do you feel? And, you know, that's what we do. And yet what we as parents, we want to say, well, here's the answer. They're not looking for answers as much as sometimes a place for them to be a a place of sanctuary and support. So if you if as a parent, if you give them the answer too soon, even if you know the answer, guess what? Now they're not going to keep coming to you because they actually want to dialogue and learn and 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 talk about it, struggle with it. And if we take away their struggle because we gave them, quote unquote, the right answer, well, you know what? That's not going to work. So, you know, you get the gold star today. I'm going to tape that part and then replay it, put it on replay on my phone. But I'll, I'll also put this part in too. There are many times when I have to have this conversation with my teenage boys as well, which is I screwed up. I'm sorry that that's the way I reacted. Here's why I reacted that way. It's out of love, but I could have done better. And you write about that as well, that we as parents need to be doing that. It's something that I didn't necessarily experience as a teenager. And I know that I should have apologized to my parents many more times. And I'm trying to model it differently now that I'm a parent, because there are times when I overreact, Jim, where I should not say what I said. And I feel like that's an opportunity for a conversation too. 
Yeah, oh, totally. And, and see, in doing that, you're showing that integrity that we talked about it's just by simply saying, hey, you know what, that was not about you. That was much more about me and kind of what I'm going through. And you know what, I'm sorry about that. And, uh, you know, I, my, I have a, one of my daughters was at the house, and I'm not a rager, and I'm actually kind of a positive kind of guy, but she sort of snapped at me, not really about me, and then I kind of snapped at her. This just the other day. She's, <laughs> she's a young adult now. And I kind of snapped at her, and she was actually, as she was walking out the door because she was going to go do something, and uh, so I called her right away. And she goes, hi, dad. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, I am so sorry. I go, that truly had really very little to do. She goes, I, I, but I snapped at you too, and I'm sorry. So what, what had happened was, uh, I mean, she was, and she's a young adult. I hope she does that. But, you know, there were other times when I, as a, you know, when they were teens where they weren't going to have the ability to say, hey, I'm, I, I'm sorry too. But, you know, I just had to say to her, hey, I'm, I am sorry. That was kind of much more about what's going on at work or life or, you know, the indigestion that I had for whatever my deal was. <laughs> Yes. Well, Jim, I just thank you so much for spending the hour with us and helping all of us who are parents of teens or those who have a 9, 10, or 11-year-old who are shaking in their boots right now. I just thank you for the conversation and the realistic expectations that we've given all of ourselves. And Jim's book is called Understanding Your Teen, Shaping Their Character, Facing Their Realities. Jim Burns, thanks so much for joining us today. Joe, as always, great to be with you. And thanks for, actually, you're the uh, teenage... Well, I start to say the teenage mom of the year. I don't mean let's hope not teenager, but the mom of teenagers of the year <laughs> for me today. It was really, really good talking with you. Well, thanks so much, Jim, and have a great day. And best of luck to you with the book and everything you do at Homeward. Great, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on Connecting Faith, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this Connecting Faith podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Connecting Faith, you can subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the awareness and impact of Connecting Faith.